Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Namnihi nui and welcome to Our Changing World. Kwa Alison Balance Oho. Conservation genetics was one of the big topics being talked about at the recent Genetic Society of Australasia annual conference in Dunedin. Now, scientific conferences usually involve researchers talking to one another, but four early career researchers took on the challenge of talking about their work in a public talk held at the fenced eco-sanctuary Orokanui. First up was Helen Taylor from the University of Otago. She's been on Our Changing World a couple of times previously. The first time she was studying little spotted kiwi for her PhD. Little spotted kiwi are a classic example of why it's important to consider genetics when we are trying to conserve species. Little spotted kiwi were once found throughout New Zealand. But by the mid-1900s, the only birds surviving were on Kapiti Island. And these birds were all descended from just five birds moved there a few decades earlier. Here's Helen to explain why this is a problem. My research focuses on what happens to populations when they become very small. And unfortunately, New Zealand is a really good place to do that kind of research because we have an awful lot of species whose populations have been completely decimated for a number of reasons. Uh, One of the problems we have is habitat loss and deforestation, habitat degradation, so there's less places for our native species to live. And of course, invasive mammalian predators, which were brought over here by people and which decimated populations of native species that evolved in the complete absence of mammalian predators and so just weren't equipped to deal with them at all. So both of these kind of threats have made our populations of, of, of native species very, very small, but also... Some of the conservation actions that we take in New Zealand also lead to small populations. So we're very fond of doing conservation translocations to get our native species to safe places away from these kind of predators. And what we'll do is take them somewhere like Orokanui, perhaps, like a fence sanctuary. So, we, you know, there's lots of fence sanctuaries in New Zealand now. We have Orokanui, Zealandia, Mangataltri, lots and lots of these kind of places with these big predator-proof fences designed to stop mammalian predators getting in. We might also take species to islands that have been cleared of mammalian predators. And there are lots and lots of these predator-free islands scattered around New Zealand. Now, the problem is that when we move species to these predator-free locations, we can typically only take a handful of individuals or, you know, relatively few compared to the source population. And so, again, we're creating a very small population with a very small number of founders. So just in the same way that when the predators come through and destroy the population, we're sort of artificially creating that with our conservation actions. So that's something we have to think about when we're doing these kind of translocations because all of these things lead to what's called a population bottleneck. So a population getting very, very small. And I'm just going to demonstrate why that is a problem for our species using a handy box of colourful balls. This box of balls here represents a population of birds. So every ball has a bird on it, Okay. 
And the different colours in the box represent different kinds of genetic diversity. So there might be different genes for disease resistance, for example. So you've got lots of different genes for disease resistance, and if different diseases come into the population, you can defend well against them. Okay? So we're now going to imagine a scenario where um, a bunch of stoats is going to come and attack this population of birds. And if I could just Helen's box is full of balls in about eight different colours. But by the time the stoat has finished eating its way through the box, just two remain. Unfortunately for us, there is a male and a female. So they're going to breed together and make more birds. But there's a red bird and an orange bird. And so all of their offspring are only going to be red and orange. Now you can see the problem here. If you look at the old population, lots and lots of colours, lots and lots of genetic variation, and you look at the new population, well, everybody looks kind of samey, right? So we've lost a huge amount of genetic variation during this bottleneck. So that is one of the things that happens during a bottleneck. We lose genetic diversity. And so now if you imagine maybe the yellow birds have a special gene that was resistant to a particular disease, if that disease now hits this population, that gene isn't there anymore, and you're looking at extinction. The other problem is we had two founders for this population and they have bred and they've had a load of kids. Who are these birds going to mate with to make more birds? Each other, yeah. Birds aren't super squeamish about mating with their siblings like we are. So they're just going to carry on doing that. And what you're going to have is what we call inbreeding, mating between relatives. So after a population bottleneck, you get increased inbreeding. And inbreeding leads to something called inbreeding depression, which is where we see harmful characteristics and harmful traits becoming exposed due to inbreeding. Okay? And it tends to affect things like reproductive success and the ability to survive. So it acts to keep a population small. The population stays small, it continues to lose genetic diversity, it continues to be prone to inbreeding, and you can see that you're heading for some kind of extinction vortex that then becomes very, very difficult to escape. So I think we can all agree that this is something that we don't want to see happening to our populations. But at the same time, conservation translocations are a really necessary tool that we use in New Zealand, so we have to think very carefully about how we manage that. Remember that example of Little Spotted Kiwi and how they're all descended from just five birds? As Helen has just explained, this is a classic example of both a genetic bottleneck and inbreeding. And the problem is even worse than that, as it seems that only three of the original five birds actually bred. Then we've made matters even worse again by moving small subsets of kiwi from Kapiti to New Island homes, where sometimes as few as two birds have successfully bred and started a new population. As a result, little spotted kiwi have some of the lowest genetic diversity of any bird in New Zealand. And sadly, they're not alone. So why does genetic diversity matter? Anna Sancho from the University of Auckland is interested in how genes are related to the fitness of an individual. In other words, how well it succeeds in life. To introduce my research, I'm really intrigued by the diversity that we see in, in nature. And in particular, when we're thinking about diversity, we often think of, of species and differences between species. But actually, when we look within a species, there's a huge amount of diversity, for example, within humans in this room. And it's kind of intriguing as to why we have so much diversity and why that diversity matters. 
So I'm particularly interested in sort of all of these uh, different forms and functions and beautiful colours and so on and, and how they matter for individuals, these characteristics and, and how these characteristics are linked to what we call fitness or the ability of an individual to survive and to reproduce. So in terms of reproduction, we can see these sheep with these big horns and these sheep uh, fight with each other and the males with the really big horns tend to win the ladies. So uh, these males with large horns tend to do much better at reproduction than any others. Uh, similarly, when we're thinking about survival, we can see that uh, camouflage is a really important component of survival. And so uh, here in these deer mice, for example, we see that uh, these darker deer mice are very well camouflaged on these old fields, uh, whereas these lighter deer mice can live quite happily in the sand dunes. So they're well camouflaged in their environment. So understanding these kind of differences that we see within the species and how they link to, to survival and to reproduction tells us a little bit about how a, how a population might adapt and might change in the future. We might all be quite familiar with the idea that our bodies are, are programmed by the DNA that's contained within our cells. And so uh, the DNA is really an instruction manual for our cells to make our bodies, to make us operate and so on. So we have our, our DNA that's kind of wound up into a DNA helix that you might be familiar with. Uh, this helix is wrapped around these proteins and wrapped and packaged into chromosomes uh, where we get one set of chromosomes from our mum and one set from our dad. And what's really key is this idea that uh, differences in the DNA can lead to differences in those proteins and how those proteins work, and they can lead to these differences in the characteristics of individuals. So we might imagine a small difference in that DNA will lead to potentially quite a large change in that protein. Thinking back to our wee deer mice, there's actually only one genetic difference between these light mice and the dark mice. And that one genetic difference uh, has a consequence that it causes a change in the protein that helps to make uh, melanin. So melanin is, it comes in these two flavours, E here for eumelanin and P for fomelanin. Uh, eumelanin is this pigment that makes our dark brown hair uh, and fomelanin makes blonde and reddish hair. And so we see that this one genetic change causes a difference in this protein uh, to make a dark version of this protein that makes eumelanin in the dark mice and uh, a light version of the protein that makes fomelanin that gives these uh, much blonder mice. So uh, this diversity at a, at a DNA level can have really big consequences for diversity at, at an individual level. Why is this diversity important? Well, in this context, it's really important in, in terms of camouflage and, and helping those individuals blend into their environment. And so here we might have a little population of these deer mice uh, where we've got dark versions and light versions of deer mice. Uh, but clearly if there's an avian predator around, those dark deer mice are going to be really, really obvious on that uh, light sandy background and they're going to be really yummy to the hawks and they're going to be easy for them to spot and, and eat. So over time we might see that sadly quite a few of those little brown deer mice will be eaten and eventually the population will really be dominated by uh, these light uh, deer mice. And the really key idea here is that we need to have this diversity to start with if we're able to allow these populations to adapt when we have these new selection pressures that are introduced to them. So uh, key to preserving, I guess, our, our own diversity and, and preserving it for future is this idea that we need to uh, preserve both genetic diversity and these diversity and characteristics. It's kind of obvious to us here in, in this context as to which trait is the beneficial one, but often when we're thinking about individuals, it's really difficult to measure every single characteristic of an individual. 
and all of the differences between individuals that might have uh, different have um, consequences in terms of their reproduction and their survival. And so we as geneticists often use uh, the diversity at a genetic level as kind of a proxy for these diversity in, in the characteristics or the potential characteristics that selection might act on in the future. So thinking back to our little example of the deer mice here, uh, what we might be able to do as geneticists is go and measure that diversity. That genetic diversity is easier, in, in fact, than measuring all of the different characteristics. So we can use it as a proxy for diversity at the population level. And we can say, well, this population is quite diverse. Uh, this population is not very diverse. So perhaps we want to, as conservation managers, we want to try and introduce diversity into this sort of deportment population to, to bump up that diversity so that we have uh, two populations that have reasonable levels of diversity. So again, now, if we have this selection pressure, we have a hawk that moves into the neighbourhood then that those, both of those populations have capacity to adapt to that selection pressure. So what Helen and Anna have been talking about is understanding what species currently have in the way of genetic diversity and thinking about how to make the most of that in the future. We can also look back to find out what we might have lost, which is what ancient DNA specialist Michael Knapp from the University of Otago does. So how is this going to help save species now? A lot of things that we're focusing on has to do with ancient DNA. And in the, in the conservation genetic context, it's basically you know, our TARDIS. It's our, our way to travel back in time and look at populations that are extinct or we look at populations that might have suffered and we, we can look at what happened before they crashed. We can even look at species that are now extinct. Our ability to do that is not actually that old. The, the oldest ancient DNA studies are about 30 years old now, but really looking at population-level dynamics in the past, we've only been able to do for the last maybe 12, 13 years or so. The first big study was in 2004. And in terms of how we can do it or how we can use ancient DNA in conservation genetics, well, if we are a bit less glamorous about it, it's basically a tool for the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. You travel to a cliff, you find your patient at the bottom badly bruised and battered and still alive, so you want to put them back together, to do that you need to have a fairly good idea of how that patient looked before he fell off the cliff. That patient would probably still be alive, but not particularly fit. So, you know, he wouldn't win a rugby game against the Lions, for example. So this is what ancient DNA is for in conservation genetics. We can reconstruct diversity and population structure before a crash happened, and that is quite useful. I'll explain that in an example that we're actually doing at the moment. And by we, that's the royal we, that's um, Denise Martini, who's uh, PhD student in our lab at the moment, and she's interested in kaka relocations. So, as many of you will probably know better than me, kaka used to be distributed throughout New Zealand uh, in lowland forests and up to medium level. Today, they are split into these, these small pockets, and in some of those pockets, they're not actually doing particularly well. The Abel Tasman region, for example, they're having real difficulties re-establishing and so a couple of years ago, a private organization, Project Jansun, started looking into relocating kakas from other regions into the Abel Tasman to boost the populations to help them reestablish. And that sort of thing immediately raises the question, well, where do you take the birds from that you want to translocate to the Abel Tasman? At that stage, there wasn't much information. Researchers from the University of Otago, Bruce Robertson's group, did a genetic study of modern kaka populations from across New Zealand 
And based on their genetic markers that they were using, they were able to say the, the population is basically characterized by what the geneticists call isolation by distance, which means the further apart two individuals live, the more distinct, genetically distinct they are. For our relocation in the Abel-Tasman region, that would mean find them somewhere close by where they're doing well. Wellington, for example, where Wellingtonians are now complaining, there are too many kaka. <laughs> so is that a feasible thing? Well, you know, at first sight, it seems like a win-win situation, but there's a problem here. Kaka is split into two <coughs> subspecies, the North Island and the South Island kaka. And looking at them, they do look a bit different. There is this difference in plumage color. There are some morphometric differences. So some conservationists will argue, don't take a North Island kaka, a Wellingtonian kaka, and take it to the South Island. That's a recipe for disaster. That's going to lead to outbreeding depression. It's going to damage things more than it's going to be useful. And the fact is, we just don't know. It, it may or it may not. In the genetic study, if that bird is from Wellington and that bird is from the Abel Tasman, then they were closely related, although they look different. But then they look different, so clearly there is some functional difference between them. Whether it matters or not, we just don't know. And to address that, there are a couple of ways to do that. We can actually look at functional differences between them. Uh, have they adapted to different environments? Um, but the easiest thing we can do, or the most low-tech thing we can do, is actually go back in time and just look at how did the population in the Abel Tasman look 800, 900 years ago before it crashed, before habitat destruction caused the, the decline, and what sort of genetic types do we find there? You know, what sort of red and green and blue balls do we find there? And then do we still find those somewhere in New Zealand? Are there populations that are most similar to what this looked like 700, 800 years ago? And obviously that's then where we should bring the birds in from, because that would be most closely to what we've lost. And this is probably the closest thing to what we can do at the moment right now. Uh, but even this would, at this stage, be quite helpful, and uh, the project has actually started in our lab now, so we'll hopefully know reasonably soon a bit more about uh, what translocations here are most recommendable. Now, we've talked on Our Changing World before about gene editing using the CRISPR-Cas9 system to make precise changes in an organism's DNA. Michael says that it's theoretically possible that we could identify lost genes in, for example, museum specimens of species such as little spotted kiwi or kakapo, and we could then use gene editing to reintroduce them into the surviving populations. It's a really interesting idea, and more importantly, the kind of ethical discussion that we need to have as a society around the whole pros and cons of gene editing. If you want to know more about this, there's a link on our webpage to an earlier interview on Our Changing World with Peter Dearden and Neil Gemmel. Check it out at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Now the final speaker in this genetics and conservation panel is Lee Rollins from Deakin University in Australia, and she has quite a different but still very relevant research area. I am working on um, a project about cane toads. And you might be sitting here now wondering why I'm talking in this panel if I work on invasive species. 
we know that uh, invasive species are a huge threat to biodiversity worldwide, and they've been named as the, the second greatest um, threat to biodiversity. And there's some great examples of species that have gone extinct as a result of invasives. One example would be St. Helena um, earwig, which is this bug that's as big as my hand. It's now missing completely, and we believe that that's as a result of rodents predating on these bugs. In New Zealand, there are plenty of examples of, of species that have been threatened and become endangered or, or even extinct as a result of invasives. So Finch's duck is a great example. And once again, we think rodents are the, the major cause of the extinction of this species. I said they were the second greatest threat to biodiversity, but for some taxa, they're actually the greatest threat to biodiversity. And that would include um, mammals, amphibians, and reptiles. So this is a picture of a woylie, which is an Australian species, which is threatened by invasives. So in this case, things like cats and foxes that predate on them. And once again, um, you have examples here of species um, in this category that are um, heavily threatened by invasives. So tuataras obviously don't, um, we don't want to have rodents on islands eating their eggs, for example. So there's a, a really big problem with respect to having invasive species around those species that we want to conserve. So there's another reason, though, that I think it's important to study invasive species in the context of conservation, and that is that they're great model species to play with. So um, invasives, we can do things with invasives that we wouldn't be able to do with conserved populations that inform us about what happens when you have small populations. So as Helen said, um, a lot of the, the problems that are associated with, with conserved populations have to do with small population sizes. And invasives, when they get introduced to a new place, are often also small populations. So we have these replicated experiments in evolution going on all over the world where we've introduced invasive species and often the same species to different environments over geographic scales that are huge and over time spans that are really long. And so these experiments are not things that we could actually do as scientists in real life, um, but this gives us the opportunity to study these, these unusual events. The other thing I want to point out is that introductions are not always successful. You may be thinking, oh, well, that's a great thing because we don't want invasive species in our, in our environments, which is true. But the other point that I'd like to make is you can compare failed introductions to successful introductions to learn about uh, what makes a good invasive species, which when I talk about invasives today, I want you to have thinking in the back of your mind about how can we actually apply this to conserved populations. So once again, if an introduction fails, that might tell us something um, if we study the genetics of those populations versus the ones that succeed. So invasive populations, as I said earlier, they have similar problems in their introduced environments to these native conserved populations. And these are things to do with population growth and persistence. So for example, um, you may have a problem finding a mate if your densities are very low. And you also might have a limited ability to evolve and adapt to a new environment. So usually we um, think about introductions having low standing genetic diversity. And if the environment's very different from the native environment, then the invasive species might not be able to meet those challenges. And similarly, as Helen demonstrated, we might have this same problem if we have translocations, for example, where we have low genetic diversity. So there are a lot of similarities that we can use these species that are in, in great numbers across the world to try to actually understand um, processes that happen in those limited native populations that we want to conserve. 
The thing that's amazing, though, is that invasive species, despite these challenges, often are very, very successful. And this is something that really caught my attention as a researcher to try to understand from a genetic perspective what it is about those populations that allow, allows them to actually be incredibly successful. And in, in some cases, they have zero genetic diversity. So there are, for example, plant introductions where every individual in the introduction is a clone, yet they're still successful. So this I find really interesting. And this paper was published in the early 2000s from Allendorf and Lundquist, and they, they made this point. They said, why are invasive species that have gone through a family bottleneck so successful? And this is called the genetic paradox of invasion. And this is something that a lot of us have spent a lot of time thinking about, and my re research certainly focuses on this area. So I work on a collection of different introduced and invasive species, and primarily I'm interested in identifying genetic and epigenetic, and so epigenetic changes are, are those that don't change the sequence of the DNA, but actually change the way the DNA functions. So both of these things can affect the way that a species functions in a new environment. So I use invasive species to study those things. I'm concerned with evolutionary theory, so I'm interested in, in the broad issue about how selection affects these small populations and how evolution actually occurs. And in invasions, we often have rapid evolution occurring, so this is really interesting to people like us. But I'm also really interested in applied outcomes. So some of my research focuses on how we can inform management of invasive species. So I've done a lot of work on um, the starling invasion in Australia and provided information to management agencies to help them understand the population structure and how individuals move between populations so they know where to put their control operations. You can also use this information to make predictions. So it's really important, for example, when we're trying to decide about what species we let into a country, whether or not it has a risk of being invasive, we can use this genetic information to understand that better and predict which species are the ones that we should be most careful about. And finally, I just wanted to leave you with this one other idea, and that is that you can actually think about manipulation as well. So this is a really recent area in genetics. We actually have been doing manipulations at a population level for a long time, and that's like this idea of the balls that we went through. Um, that's a manipulation if you try to take individuals into an area that have some genetic diversity that doesn't exist there. Um, but even on the individual level, we now start to get access to technologies where we can manipulate genes to prevent specific processes happening. So for example, in an invasive species, if you know something that can limit their ability to disperse, then you could change that gene and, um, and perhaps prevent an invasion. On the flip side of this, you may be able to think about things you can do in conserved populations to help them be more robust. So this is a, a really a very topical area at the moment. There's a lot of public debate, which I think is wonderful, and I would just like to say I'm not a proponent necessarily of this, but I think it's a great thing for us to all think about and discuss. Thanks, Lee. And Lee Rollins is at Deakin University in Australia. On this conservation genetics panel, we also heard from Helen Taylor and Michael Knapp, who are both at the University of Otago, and Anna Sancher from the University of Auckland. And that's our show for this week. But if you head to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld, you'll find more than a decade's worth of Our Changing World stories on everything from rare birds to ultra-cold physics. Thanks, as always, for your company. But for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marie. <laughs>